0: Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a video and podcast show that brings you leadership lessons, knowledge, experience and wisdom from hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Today, I'm privileged to welcome a very, very accomplished leader who's currently in Hawaii, Julie Hill. Julie, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Uh, Julie is the founder of The Hill Company She's the director of Anthem, which is a Fortune 50 company, a leading health benefits company in the US. She's the director of the Lord Abbott family of funds, which is a $180 billion mutual fund company. She's the director of UNYQ, a medical variables company. And she's involved with several philanthropic activities. And I must add, she and I are on the advisory board of the YPO Earth Impact Summit. So Julie, what would you say are the three key milestones in your life or your career?
1: I think probably the most formative mm-hmm. ever was mm-hmm. that I lost my mother
2: oh, I'm sorry
1: when I was 17.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, she was only 47. Wow. I I have a brother who actually is four years younger than I, and he wound up being a rocket scientist. Wow. He had a mentor when he was uh, first starting out
2: mm-hmm.
1: who said to him that he felt that the uh, kind of indicative things for success was that you Faced adversity when mm. you were young, and that you were hopeful and optimistic.
2: Okay.
1: And okay. I think I think it's true. I I once was told that I have an optimism gene, mm-hmm. which I guess one can have.
2: Fantastic. So I would
1: say that while it was incredibly upsetting and and disturbing and tragic,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it probably was the singularly most formative thing that happened to me. Amazing, amazing. So that that would be one. Um, The second one was the birth of my son. My Mm -hmm. son is now 35. He's a tech entrepreneur. And I have my first granddaughter, who's a year and a half. Mm -hmm. But um, I had been told I couldn't have children. So when he was born, we named him Matthew, which means gift from God. Mm -hmm. And then I think probably from a career perspective, it was the first time I became a CEO.
0: Okay. Amazing. Amazing. so let's talk about uh, the Hill Company. Tell me what does what is the scope of work you'd handle at the Hill Company?
1: Well, when I um, my first CEO position mm-hmm. was um, I ran a division of a British company called Costain. Yeah. They were based in the UK. Mm-hmm. They're probably most known for being the lead uh, partner on the consortium that built the channel, the channel mm-hmm. under the English Channel and um, we We had a U.S. division, home building, land development division, Mm -hmm. and that was uh, what I was running. After about 10 years of being CEO of that U.S. division, they decided that they no longer wanted to be in home building business worldwide. Mm -hmm. They were mining, heavy engineering, construction. So they decided that they would sell their land, and I purchased the land. Good. So I became a developer on my own, an entrepreneur and I built homes for a number of years
2: wow. and
1: then when the I was fortunate on, on timing, I decided to sell the business and uh, the Hill Company now is a portfolio of interest. It's my own investments, it's things that I do, mm-hmm. consulting things that I do and then I, I roll into that all of the um, for-profit boards that I do. Amazing.
0: Amazing. So let's now talk about you as a board member you know, and uh, as an entrepreneur. As you look back at life, what have been some of the core values you have always believed in?
1: Well, it's interesting. I I wouldn't typically say this to people in the US because we have institutional shareholder services and other organizations that monitor these kinds of things. But I've been on this health benefits. It's a, insurance, a large insurance company, health insurance for 27 years. Wow. And the reason I stay is because through every regime of CEOs every I I can't tell you how many board members have cycled in and out what my motto has been is Mm -hmm. this is healthcare, so that the things that you that we are doing we're not creating a widget we're actually affecting someone's life Mm. so I would say the the efficacy and the allegiance to doing the right thing sometimes that's hard as you know being on boards you Mm -hmm. can get into a kind of a group think Right. mechanism you, you you know you want words to be collegial but you don't want it to be groupthink. and a lot of times we forget not only are we fiduciaries we have to make certain that the company that's public is is doing well
0: mm-hmm.
1: but really you have a responsibility to the end user yeah. and i used to say to this the ceo of that company that if there was ever a decision that was disputed about whether something should be covered it has to go to the consumer mm-hmm. i know if you know basketball at all they have a thing called the jump ball yeah. we're two people jump up and the one, you know, the one saying I've always had is that, that the jump ball goes to the consumer.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I think that, that that has stood me in good stead. Um, for whatever reason, I, I feel like I've got a good moral compass mm-hmm. and there are times when decisions have to be made. And if you always just go back to your true north, is this the best for everyone? Um, and I think that has helped me
0: too. Incredible. Thank you. So you know, you became a CEO at a very young age and you ran a large organization for a British company and then you built so many businesses, you watched so many CEOs. What in your opinion are some of the more important qualities a CEO should have?
1: You know, Essentially because it's, it's opposite. We, we talked for so long about the Imperial CEO and we had this idea that the CEO should know everything and the CEO should be the one decision maker. I think the models are changing finally. And for me, good CEOs have always built for consensus. They they honored and respected the people that worked for them. They had a sense of, there's a term now, in fact, I think there's a book called Servant Leadership. Mm-hmm. They had a sense that a good leader actually is a servant, okay. gives back and leads in that way. And the best ones that I have known and the one where I tried to be was, was like that. Mm-hmm. I currently sit on the board of this Lord Abbott Mutual Fund mm-hmm. and the leader, the managing partner, there is of a different generation. He's in his early fifties, mm. and he absolutely understands this. Mm. And since he took over three years ago, in fact, I should correct that number: 180 billion under management. It's now mm. 230 billion.
0: Oh wow!
1: And I think, in many ways, that's because of his style of leadership, which is exactly like this. Mm. There, very little arrogance, lots of curiosity, lots of compassion. Um, shares wisdom. Shares. Uh, knowledge distributed within the industry. So, those are the things that I've tried to espouse myself.
0: Amazing, and uh, you know, the, the whole world is talking about the environmental, social, and governance values in 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 business. It's been talked you know much more in your country, and now it's gradually coming to the other parts of the world. What are your thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, you know, I served on a board called Lindley's. It was based in Australia, mm-hmm. and they built in eighty countries. I was, um, as I've often been in my career for one reason or another, the, the first woman in a, in a certain place, and there were there were no women on that board. Mm-hmm. And they gave me the sustainability committee. This goes back to 2006, and I think it was well. Let's give this to the girl because mm-hmm. it's not that important.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But what it became was it. Initially, it was thought to be maybe where all the safety statistics roll up. Right. But we broadened it and we, we started calling it, it was before ESG was a common
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, name. And we started to talk about it being for our workforce.
2: Mm-hmm. We
1: talked about it uh, for the well-being of our workforce. We talked about what we were putting in and taking out of the earth. We uh, added safety statistics in, but we also started to talk about governance. Okay. And governance at that point in time for me um, meant people how do we help to manage our people? Now the S and ESG is the social. Mm-hmm. But we, I, I realized that there were 31 leaders worldwide in this company. There was one woman, mm-hmm. and she was made one third of what the lowest man's salary was. Wow. And that couldn't stand for me. So social and governance, those things have become more important. Mm-hmm. And through that that company, because they they were in the built environment, Mm -hmm. I had the opportunity to go to Cambridge and take uh, the course from um, Al Gore, Mm -hmm. the Inconvenient Truth Man, and understood more about really the threat to our planet. And I felt like I got to know that early on. Since then, I've worked with organizations that are trying to get people to understand that we truly just have about 10 years more now. Wow. In fact, I'm working with an organization called Leaders Quest, which is partnered with TED, mm-hmm. that is doing 10 years. It's called Countdown, Countdown to 2030. 10 years of programming to try to get people to understand mm-hmm. that we have to do this on a worldwide basis. It's a collective effort.
0: Amazing, amazing. So let's move on to the next segment of our conversation, which is you as an independent director. Um, you know, I'm not sure about the US, but in India, the independent director has almost the same fiduciary responsibilities as an executive director. So tell me for so many of our viewers and listeners, what do you look for before you accept a position as a board member?
1: That's very interesting. Um, When I first went on my board um, so many years ago, I knew enough to know that I wanted to speak to the auditors Mm
2: -hmm.
1: in advance. I wanted to understand how the books were.
2: Mm
1: The second thing, I I remember asking a a lawyer to tell me what his biggest worries were, tell me where he felt the risk factors were Mm -hmm. and to tell me where he was in ongoing litigation Mm -hmm. and then I had a long chat with the CEO, basically more about philosophy, trying to understand um, what what he believed in Mm -hmm. and all of those things are fair to ask before you go on a board.
0: Correct and I would imagine you know, when you talk philosophy, you would probably want to see whether your philosophy and the organization philosophy matched.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I didn't know a lot to ask that for first time, but I've learned over over time how important that is. I agree
0: with you. And you know uh, I've often heard this and I've seen it in several boards that I have uh, been on, there's a lot of talk about, about transparency. but yet there is a lot that non-executive board members don't know. So what are your thoughts on the level of transparency needed in boardrooms?
1: I can give you a very good example. Um, about let's say how many years ago this has been? Maybe ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I chaired the governance nominations and governance committee on the Anthem board, okay. and it was during a time when Obama was president. Mm-hmm. And I asked to see what our political contributions were, mm-hmm. and you have every right to see that as a fiduciary and as a board member. Mm -hmm. And I was told by the then CEO that I couldn't. And I said, that's, that's not right. Mm -hmm. So I went to the general counsel, I asked for them. And he said to me, you really don't want to. Mm -hmm. And I said, now I really do want to. And what I found was under a democratic administration, the company was giving 95% of their funds to the Republicans. Wow. Which Which made no sense at all. And it was because the current CEO had very strong political leanings, Mm -hmm. but the fact that she thought that she could keep it from a board member was wrong. And that ultimately led to her having to leave the company. So the kinds of things that, you know, what's so interesting is, as you know, companies put out proxy statements. In fact, on my mutual fund board, I chair the proxy committee, so we watch all of the proxies that come through. Mm -hmm. But then the number of board members that I've found who actually do not read their own proxy statements, Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes it can run to, you know, 30, 40, 50 pages. But reading your own proxy statement, you will learn things. Absolutely. But I do know also, and this has started to happen where the U.S. is demanding more transparency on diversity, they want statistics you know state street and blackrock and the capital group american funds all of them are asking companies to be highly responsible now
2: mm-hmm. for
1: having equitable boards mm-hmm. and companies are starting i noticed this a little bit in one of my companies trying to fudge it just a little bit mm-hmm. now because we don't have sasb is trying to set up standards across the board for governance but we don't specifically have have um, common metrics But yes, transparency is important. And what people are understanding now is that eventually you will be found out. Mm -hmm. You can't fool people all the time. Mm -hmm. So transparency is incredibly important.
0: Interesting. So this, uh, you know, your last comment on gender diversity gives me an interesting segue to our next part of our conversation. You know, uh, gender diversity has been spoken about again in your country for a very long time. I mean, I always say that the rest of the world actually learns a lot from the the corporate world from what the US does Um, and in Asia it's just about beginning to catch up. My first question to you is that how important is gender diversity and I genuinely believe half the population has to have half the representation at least. Uh, But what are your thoughts on this?
1: Well there's a wonderful book by the way by Nicholas Kristof called Women Hold Up Half the Sky Mm -hmm. and so probably more but uh, probably, that would be my bias i think <laughs> with you. But, but absolutely you know now it's not a mystery that diverse boards diverse teams diverse companies do better because they can think of more things they understand the world from more perspectives so diversity as a business case is extremely important for me, it's always been, I can only speak from where I come from, but as I said, I, I very frequently have been the only woman or one of very few in a situation. And those voices don't get heard. There is a there is kind of an unspoken rule that with one woman, you can get some things on the agenda. With two, at least, you can have a conversation back and forth between the two women. But with three, it becomes the conversation. It's just a human dynamic. And I think, so for me, being female in a situation – is an avatar for all kinds of diversity. Mm. I'm just one example. But the kinds of diversity that we're looking at now has got to be figured out and gotten right. Mm. And I had a very long debate with, uh, again, the Lend-Lease Board was all male. And I had a very long debate with them. They were very, very much against targets or quotas. Mm. And for much of my life, I was too, Mm. until I started watching the statistics of women on boards in the US and then and also the UK and what I was understanding when I first started to look I think uh, 11% of corporate board members in the fortune 50 Mm
2: -hmm.
1: were women Mm -hmm. and over the years it went to maybe 12 Mm -hmm. then 12 and a half and then 13 and it just was glacially slow and so my opinion about targets and quotas completely shifted and I went back to, to saying this when I was on the Lend-Lease board, and I said, the definition of being crazy is doing the same thing over and over and expecting the outcome to be different. So we have got to do something different. So we will have quotas, or I will resign and I will say why. I mean, it had to get to that point. So I'm, I'm in favor of that. I'm on a board in the US called Women on Boards 50-50, mm-hmm. so that by um, next 20 years, 30 years, we will be able to have... Uh, closer representation, working up to to
2: 50%.
1: And one of the things that one of the women on that board did was got the California legislature to mandate that if you were a company, a corporation that was domiciled in California and was public by, I think we started in 2019, you had to have one woman. 2020, you had to have two. And by the end of 2021, you have to have three wow. or you'll be fined. And that, I, I, 15 years ago, I would have said that was horrific, but that has to happen.
0: Correct. So, you know, we also have legislation in India, and this is about six, seven years old, where one third of the boards of all public companies have to be women. By when? By now? Well, by now, yes. So, someone called, someone called me the other day and said, you know, uh, I'm a billion dollar company. I need to get a woman on my board because I'm, 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 I'm low on compliance. Can you recommend somebody? So I rang up a friend who was a was a very accomplished professional, and she, her answer was amazing. She said, "Does he want me because of my mind or because of my sex?" Yes. And uh, you know, she exactly. refused to join because she said you wanted me as a woman rather than for what I have accomplished.
1: I completely respect that decision. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you you know, it's interesting. On another one of my boards, we have specified we want an African American. Mm. And when I went to the headhunter, I said, "I need to tell you more of what I want. Mm. I don't want someone just because he or she is African American. Here, here are the specifications. But if everything else is equal, I, I want the African American candidate." Excellent, excellent. Okay.
0: So, one more question on gender diversity before I move to the last segment of our conversation. You know, what in your opinion, and you. Uh, is the way to correct this imbalance. One you said, of course, is legislation, but there are many ways around the legislation.
1: Well, there are, I mean, that's, that's kind of the blunt instrument, isn't it? That's the forcing mechanism. But let me tell you one thing that I'm doing. <clears throat> I have a very dear friend mm-hmm. who's the Dean of the Law School. I chair the Board of Trustees at the University of California. And um, the Dean of the Law School is half Black and half Asian.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: she happens to be a expert, a scholar on implicit bias in AI. Mm. and she her her lived experience is that so i created something to do with her for companies called byob yep. and i'll explain so bring your own booze right mm. it's kind of a party party mm. term yep. that meant that we would be doing this at the end of the day the workday so it would be cocktail hour mm. but it wasn't bring your own booze it was bring your own bias okay. and everyone would come and i i was The white girl trying to be an ally trying to understand and try to learn and her name is song richardson and song was the expert both again from her lived experience and from her study and i would ask her questions Mm -hmm. and what i said was there are a lot of terms being used now Mm -hmm. racial bias um, implicit bias Mm -hmm. um, systemic racism um, white supremacy uh, white privilege and we went through every one of them and we defined those terms so the answer to you, I think, is that we have to begin to understand. We have to begin to to talk to each other. We have lived in different camps for so long. And we also need to understand, at least in the U.S., what happened to create the inequalities that we have now. We had, after the war, there was the GI Bill, where the returning war veterans were given preferable rates to buy a home. That built massive wealth for the middle class out of, tens of thousands of those loans the percentage given to blacks was de minimis very very small so you had two different races building two different futures mm-hmm. without without equity there are also in communities uh, these areas banks if someone could get enough together to buy a house they would redline districts
2: mm-hmm.
1: so that the black people would be constrained to one neighborhood there was very little integration. So we. this is what they mean by systemic racism. The systems didn't work equally.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So once, once you start to educate yourself, if you're a little curious and you can start to understand that these things shouldn't be charged, I personally believe that we have to have something in our country similar to what happened in South Africa, mm-hmm. a peace and reconciliation Correct. commission. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise we won't get there. And I never thought of Australia as being a particularly um, open, diverse country in acceptance. Mm -hmm. But at every public company meeting, the chairman has to stand up first and say, we thank our indigenous people for the land. So there, there are mechanisms and things we can do. And I just hope that the US doesn't waste this opportunity. Right. We've had such racial unrest, the, the George Floyd situation, that's what galvanized me and I thought we all have to do our part. Right. So
0: I, I hope I, and I'm very hopeful that we can
1: actually start to make some difference
0: now. Very interesting. So I'm now going to move to our last segment of the conversation. There's some questions for you personally. I have time for two, maybe three questions. My first question is that you know, you have achieved so much. You do so much for so many organizations. At the stage you are in life today, what does success mean to Julie? It's so interesting. I, I mentioned my brother mm-hmm. before,
1: who's four years younger than I am, yeah, a and sun. he and he retired. He mm-hmm. had a very a fabulous career as an engineer, mm-hmm. and he said to me, "When are you going to retire?" And I said, "This is me retired. Okay. This this is what I will That's do awesome. forever." So success for me, what what's happened to me now? It's it's somewhat magical in the sense that because I've been working so long and I have met so many people, I've been so privileged Mm. that one of the things that I feel is success is that I can put people together. Mm. I can, I can find that someone, I just spoke today to a woman who is a patient and she's very frustrated because she's not getting her insurance Mm. and she wants to work in patients' rights. Well, one of the young women that I mentored started a cooperative called savvy cooperative. It's for, it's about uh, patients' rights. And that happens to me all the time. So for me, success says all of these years of working can actually be put to good use now.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's it's very much like what we're working on with EIS. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like talking, talking to Peter Seer, people that we know, people who, who create good. And there's something I was so fascinated with it, with understanding the term alchemy. Mm-hmm. There's yes. some alchemy that happens when okay. you put people together Absolutely. and they work for good together. It's, it's, Brilliant. And I've, I've noticed that when truth bubbles up one place, it starts to bubble up all over and in many things. And finding people who believe as you do and want to work on things like you do, that to me, that's the best. That's success.
0: Fantastic. My next question is uh, you know, that you serve on so many philanthropic boards. Um, what motivates you to give back so much?
1: Well, in each case, there's a little bit of a different motivation. Partially, it's because I think. I, because I can,
2: mm-hmm.
1: because I can, and because I believe I should. Um, yeah. it, it, every time I've done this, I feel like I've gotten more back mm-hmm. than I've given. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you the first one. When when I was running Costain and we were building building homes,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, a woman who ran a domestic violence shelter asked me to come and see the shelter. And I had not, that was an area that, you know, very taboo to talk about. This was mm-hmm. many, many years ago. And I went to this shelter and walked in and saw three little boys sitting on a couch and they couldn't go outside. It was baseball season. Uh, My son was young at the time. I was getting his baseball uniform and things ready. And I realized what a vast effect this had on families. And so I I thought about what can I do? And what I could do was build a shelter. They They were in a home in a crowded area and it wasn't safe. So I got together a consortium of developers and builders, and it was wonderful. The roofing contractor donated all the materials and the time and, and the electricians, and every one of them did that. Mm. In fact, the director called it um, the house that love built. And that was such a wonderful, wonderful experience. I think that really started me doing that. And also, I mean, we don't talk about this very much, but it's fun you know, to have that camaraderie and to see the outcomes and to see... Uh, the product of philanthropy Peter Drucker said is a changed life Mm. and to see the life that you can change what could be better than that.
0: Fantastic, what a great way to end uh, a conversation with a quote from Drucker. Uh, Julie thank you so very much, I loved our conversation about gender diversity and incredible how much you're giving back, thank you again, it's been such a pleasure speaking to you.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Thank you.